Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Growth is going to be our key focus for today. And whether that is expanding your company's footprint or expanding a product or service offering, and it's equally true whether you're inside the company or actually leading the company, regardless of the size. So we want to start with talking about how do you understand the go and no-go decisions your companies are making to choose to go into a new area to expand an offer? And therefore, how can you pitch those ideas in a better way? We also want to talk about the culture and the leadership that is going to enhance and in particular impede growth. So what does that mean you're doing as a leader to foster growth? And ultimately, as always on the show, what can you do about it? So my guest today is Douglas McGann. Douglas is a managing partner at Camber Advisors, which is a boutique management consulting and advisory firm located in New York and Connecticut. And his diverse career has been built over 30 years in driving financial and operational performance at private equity-backed fintech, multinational banking, consultancy, and startup organizations in all stages of growth, domestic and international experience, and including senior-level leadership across all functions, P&L responsibility, and direct accountability to the board of directors. So his most recent role before Canberra Advisors was as president and CFO of Unirush, where he architected and drove a three-year transformation of a $100 million privately owned prepaid debit card company into a diversified payments company, and then facilitated the sale of the company in 2017 to a strategic buyer. So as you can tell, Douglas has been in the driver's seat in a whole bunch of places on these go, no-go, expanse, redirect kind of discussions. Plus, he's now been consulting and advising other companies on this in the last few years. So his team at Canberra Advisors specializes in just that, driving situational awareness within organizations and providing advisory and execution support to C-suite leaders and their teams navigating through the pivotal moments of change. Aren't we all? You can learn more at their website, Camber, C-A-M-B-E-R, advisors, LLC.com. Douglas, welcome to the show. Wanda, thank you very, very much. Glad to be here. Thank you. It's good to have you. I have to I always like to start with why. Why do you care? And so you could be in the driver's seat and running another company. You've done that in a bunch of places. Yeah. Why are you now consulting with people? Why do you care about the problems you're seeing in clients? Well, I, I, I'll tell you, one of the things that really motivates and energizes me is the diversity. Um, I, I, I do not suffer a monotony well. And so I think the, the diversity of challenge, the diversity of industry, um, it is, it's amazing how common some of the problems that some of these companies and leadership teams are experiencing, just regardless of the industry itself. And uh, the ability to lend itself, uh, lend my skills and the background that I've done, I, it, it really is everything to me. I love that phrase. I don't suffer monotony well. Um, what a great way of saying I need more variety and more Correct. stimulation. Correct. <laughs> and it's great once you get a company started. It's a whole other thing when you're trying to drive the scale of that company. That's I love right. it. That's right. Like, 
I agree with you too. It's amazing. I know companies who sit within a particular industry think that the industry is quite unique. Um, I find there are very few unique components of industries. There are a few, but not very many. Sure. And people are always asking me about company culture, which is definitely true, but I think it comes in about three varieties. And after that, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of difference. Problems are very similar. We could disagree on my company culture statement, if you like. All right. So let's talk about this go, no go decision. So you've been in the driver's seat. You've been in the point at which that decision was made, either because you were making it or you were advising somebody to make it or you were there when the decision was being made. And what I'm interested in is why, what works and what doesn't work. So it's a, it's an interesting question. Um, I have had experiences as I was a rising leader in large organizations. Um, and I got some very big jobs uh, overseas and whatnot that celebrated some of the successes that I had had. And I, I think that this go, no go decision really comes down, particularly from the folks that are, are, are making the decisions is how much buy-in across the organization have I really achieved? How much partnership, collaboration, consensus, um, it's, it's, you know, when you're, when you're young and you're getting started and you're, you're, you're growing and you are driving an idea, a lot of times the tendency amongst uh, rising leaders is to kind of keep it for yourself. And I think really testing it with the other functional and nothing gets done by yourself. So collaborating with the other leaders that are going to be a part of enabling it and making it successful is something that CEOs and decision makers are going to be looking for, nodding heads around the room to say, and it's the unspoken language. It's the, it's, it's the body language that says that something is a really great idea and something that's worth moving forward. Okay, so let me take a case. To be remain nameless, I'm going to disguise the context of it, but this is a guy I worked with who had a very interesting idea for a growth opportunity. He believed could be a big growth opportunity. So we're talking lots of money, lots of zeros attached to the end of that. But it's uh, something competitors weren't doing. So some risk associated with it. You know, of course, the first step is always go to your boss. You explain the idea to your boss. Your boss is sort of enthusiastic about it. They offer some suggestions. Maybe you take it to your boss's boss, come back, refine. You do a couple of iterations on that, but he's now not making traction. Like it's just like senior leaders are not convinced. So what's your advice to him? What should he be doing? And he's not a junior in the organization. Like he isn't trying to hold on to the idea. Sure. So I I think a lot of times um, it's, you really have to fight this tendency to be insular um, it's one thing to socialize the idea amongst your peers and amongst your colleagues within the organization. I think having the ingenuity and the assertiveness to go outside of the organization to understand truly why are competitors, what is the market appetite for this idea? Mm-hmm. Um, that has to be tested. And if, and, and if something is missing, if something has been missing around whatever the, the market is, is, is saying, and you think you've got it beat, or you think you've got a different perspective that's going to win, uh, you really have to take extra care in 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 building um, awareness and 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 the case for why that's going to be success and what it's going to take to make it succeed. And that is something that is um, that that is that is a strong skill that 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 people really need to gravitate to in order to get something moving with leadership. 
Okay. All right. I'm going to give you another one. I think you're going to be the same answer, but we have this time a young person, you know, let's say mid thirties. So been around a bit, but not a seasoned leader by any stretch of the imagination. Pretty good track record of spotting opportunities in his industry. But he seems to be a couple of years ahead of everybody else spotting it. So three, four times we've watched him do this. And people finally catch up with him. It turns out he was right. At the moment, he has an idea that he thinks is where the market is really going to go. Customers don't yet know they need it in quite the classic workplace. And his CEO is kind of like, prove it to me. You know, one of those sort of, I'm not going to buy anything until you've got it really nailed down. All right. So, you know, he's pitched the idea, not getting anywhere. What would you tell him to do? So I had had similar instances like that where there was this notion of a big bang, big bang approach to a big idea. Uh And sometimes because of either the numbers or the impact it's going to have on the market or the visibility that it's going to have to an industry, Sometimes it just spells out, particularly if you're somebody that's on the rise and you don't have necessarily the track record um, that you're that you, you might need in doing these types of things. It's about shrinking the scope of this so that you can test it and that you can actually test the viability of it so that you can prepare yourself for the unforeseen and then ultimately take that as your fact base. When you get into the leadership, say now now it's tested. It's time to go. It's time to go big. If, if the test actually proves out uh, okay. on your assumptions. Okay. All right. So I think I've heard across all of these two things. One is go and test. Find a data point somewhere in the market that says, this is how this would work. This Correct. is what it would take. This is what it would look like. This is who would buy it. I've heard also get much broader buy-in across the organization for the right. people that are going to be essential for implementing it. Okay, and then I've heard bring a more completed package to the senior leadership team so there are more heads nodding around the table. Agreed, agreed. Okay, all right, now what if you're not getting buy-in from your colleagues? Suppose your colleagues can't quite get it. I think um, if I think if your colleagues, it, it might come down to something that has something other to do, other, uh, to do with other than just the idea itself. I think organizational dynamics and politics start to play a role here. I think at the end of the day, the relationships, your partnerships, um, the way that you conduct your network and the way that you conduct, and, and certainly the way they help others whenever they have their idea that they need to move mm-hmm. forward. Um, there's a lot of things that I think play into inertia um, in an idea and whether or not it gets traction or not. Um, but I think, I think um, education uh, of your idea with folks, testing the assumptions, and really respecting some of the feedback that you're getting from folks is really, really critical because I think learning from your colleagues rather than demonstrating that you know amongst your colleagues, I think is probably one of the most valuable skills that um, is underrepresented in places. Okay. Today. All right. All right. You know that classic thing when you got a great idea and everybody feels like they're too busy already. Mm-hmm. And so they say, yeah, great idea, but we don't have capacity. Sure. What sure, I know that well. I know that well. <laughs> what do you do then? Um, look, I think I think ingenuity um, and creativity around getting things done. Uh, look, 
I've made a career of basically having people tell me that you can't get something done and I'll give you three or four reasons and ways that you can. Um, I think that you have to have the confidence to do it. I think that this is where the midnight oil uh, pays off. I think this is where um, organizational, you can call it bureaucracy, you can call it inertia, you can call it whatever you like. But the molasses that sometimes gets in the way of you getting things moving is something that you just have to be determined and have the perseverance to uh, to break through. Okay. All right. That was the one ingredient I was waiting for you to say, because sometimes it's time to give up and sometimes it's not time to give up. Sometimes you just have to come back at it and back at it and back at it and back at yeah. it. And eventually people start to see, especially if you're getting some data, some test. Exactly. Okay. When do I know it's time to quit? Like, Wanda, that is not going to go stop. I'm wasting my energy. Yeah, I, I think I think um, it's important to understand a, a lot of folks that come functionally with an idea. You know, they come from the seat in the function that that is 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 really bound by, you know, if it's marketing or if it's technology or if it's operations. A lot of times you see the boundaries really, really informed by that function. I think really having an understanding of what the fortitude of the organization cross-functionally is, is important. I think when you have an awareness of that, and if the agenda, if the company is in front of a lot of very, very significant initiatives um, uh, that are resource consuming, um, timing is important. Um, Your idea doesn't necessarily need to go away. It just means you're going to wait for the right time for it to emerge whenever some of these other things that are in the way, you know, are cleared. Yeah. Um, sometimes that is a reality. Sometimes you do have to be patient. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't mean you abandon the idea, though. Yeah. Okay. Don't give up. Just keep going. Nah, you don't give up. You never I, change. You, you might change the plan. You don't change the vision. <laughs> okay. All right. So, again, the importance of getting outside of my particular sphere Yep. collaborating with colleagues, particularly colleagues are going to have to help me implement it, get their buy-in. I get buy-in by having tests, by showing people the opportunity, small experiments. I get buy-in by showing people three ways that it can be done, even though they think that it can't be done. I spend some midnight oil sticking with the idea, developing the idea, developing the pitch line for it, meaning the storyline I'm going to tell people to make it more persuasive. And I don't give up. I wait for timing. Correct. Okay. All right. Any other advice on how to how to pitch this idea? You know, I, I think that um, organizational politics oftentimes come into play, and for the wrong reasons, things get shut down. Yeah. And I think having a data driven and an analytical approach to inform your assumptions and the the basis for the idea and why it's something that needs to move forward. I think when data is there, it erases all politics because it's difficult. It's difficult to argue with just empirical facts. And I think having that type of an approach in a business setting, I don't care. It doesn't matter what function you're in. Um, it, it really is um, a mark for me of comprehensiveness in the thinking of the individual who's coming forward, who can present just the raw information, the financial metrics, the financial, um, you know, the ROI on, on decisions and things of that nature. Okay. All right. So you're data driven and we're back to the idea of testing. Yes. I think it's generally true. You can correct me on this one that most entrepreneurs, so really successful entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. would say we had to test, refine, test, refine. And often it's the third test 
that you really get an idea right before it's ready, really ready to move. But that notion that I got it right the first time is a rare case. Is that your experience? Yeah, I, that, those first time lightning rods are very rare. I, I think you're learning in every one of those iterations that you just articulated. Um, I think that there's a balance between, um, yes, testing and, 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 and developing greater instinct. It doesn't necessarily mean you have 100% of the data set. Right. Some of this is instinct. And that's what makes great leaders and, diff, you know, CEOs are special breeds. Okay. It's not just because of the title. Okay. It really is because they're special at thinking about something differently than everybody else. Okay. I can't resist following that lead. What is it that's so special about CEOs? Um, I, I, would, I would have to say that great CEOs to me are the ones that, um, the best ones for me, quite frankly, the best one that I've ever had was the one who, uh, I, I definitely had to test myself. But once I was able to demonstrate resourcefulness and a perseverance and a fight really to get things done, um, it was about, all right, go get it done. I'm going to give you all the rope that you need and I'll clear the way uh, of whatever's in, whatever, whatever impediment is there, I'm going to clear it for you. Okay. Um, that's a great CEO and, 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 and amongst other things, they do a lot of things, but I think that, that hiring that great team around them um, and really promoting their cause and getting out of their way to let them do what they know how to do is a great, 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 great leader. Yeah. There's many magics of leading a team this way. All right. So let's shift then. Perfect segue to talk about leadership in particular. So well, before I go there, let's talk about the mistakes. What mistakes are you seeing companies make when it comes to expanding, expanding to new markets, new products? Um, I think I, I, for our business, we're seeing a lot of leaders um, who are getting out over their skis in a manner of speaking around trying to chase a market shift before they've really put the business case, the preparedness, gotten the right people, the skill sets, and really thought through what that execution plan is. And I think out of, out of, out of fear, anxiety, I would say, of missing out on something, they jump too quick. Mm -hmm. um, and then they're financially not ready for it. And they really, they really then put the company in a precarious spot. Okay. So can you give me an example? I recognize you might need to keep the company confidential, but you sure. know. Yeah, we had a, we had a SaaS, we had a SaaS operator that was um, serving a, a lot of the hedge fund companies um, in, in desktop architecture and, and, and software. And uh, a few of his notable clients started to demonstrate a wish to move to another, to another kind of the next chapter. And he had put all of his eggs, his, the CEO had, he was a technologist. He had put all of his eggs in that, that basket that he had already been delivering. And I think not wanting to lose his customers, not, not wanting to seem irrelevant, he started to engineer that shift. And he really did it hastily and it hurt him. Wow. So you're sitting next to him. How would you tell, what would you tell him? To, so clients are saying, come on, come on, come on, come on. We want this shift. Sure. How would you have advised him to handle that? Um, I, he, I, I advised him. I did advise him, actually. He needed to have a tighter relationship with his board and his investors. Um, he attempted to fund this new shift out of his earnings, out of his existing company, um, which was a really fatal fatal flaw in many ways. It, it, certainly, the company still did well. But he really should have had a business and an investment case because 
You don't necessarily abandon the old just to go after the new. They both coexist. You have to do both. And the investment case is really what he needed to pursue so that he could get buy-in at the board and his management team. And then he'd have the funding that he needs that wouldn't hurt the um, the company itself because he was really trying to grow a bigger picture, not just change the color of an existing picture into something that's right, new. Right. So he wasn't killing a cash cow in order to develop right. a new cash that's cow. Exactly right. That's exactly he right. He was holding on to both of them, which meant he needed the proper investment in the new and that meant he needed a business case to go to the board and the investors. Correct. Okay. Correct. All right. You see companies all the time trying to expand geographically. What mistakes do you see them make? So we had a we had a company that um, we actually brought a company from the UK over to the US. It was a manufacturing facility, our manufacturing company. And um, they had tried to do this on their own from, from the UK. Uh-huh. And they just, as far as developing fulfillment and distribution and really local local market presence, uh, was a very very difficult thing to do from afar. Mm-hmm. Um, understanding, um, you know, little things, tedious things, uh, you know, how do how do you ship, you know, uh, sensitive things in the United States is a very difficult thing, right? So a, a lot of thought operationally um, as to how you're actually going to execute the strategy, and you know, people want to talk to people in the local market. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to say that everything could be done virtually and everything, but sometimes you you, you just can't replace being on the ground, um, particularly where you're doing large deals. And that's exactly what they were trying to do. So we actually brought them over and, and developed the market in the U.S. for them um, and then handed the business once we had developed it back to them. Um, but a lot of CEOs and a lot of leadership teams, they really underestimate operationally what it takes to be successful in a new market. Um, and then you got to serve the market that you built. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you need to know how to do that. And especially if you've underestimated it, then you're fixing. That's exactly right. Back, on the back end. That's exactly right. Exactly. Right. Okay. All right. So as we would always say, the devil is in the details, I think is the summary of that right. story that right. the local conditions can be dramatic. There's always a place for rigor. Okay. So what do you, you know, suppose I've got a leader, a company who's trying to now think about where are they going? They're going to expand um, and they're trying to think, you know, how do I make the decision? Which choice is the right things? What do you advise people to think about? So we, we actually had a client that we got involved with that was a single state operator mm-hmm. trying to transition to a multi-state footprint mm-hmm. across the country. Um, they were very excited to do it very quickly. And the advice was to penetrate the iceberg that they were already sitting on in the local market that they were already operating and just certifiably demonstrate success in that market before you take on the burden and the complexity that comes from now taking that template and blueprint and replicating it in other markets. Okay. All right. And why, why is your advice to penetrate the iceberg? I think in that particular case, um, some of the methodologies had were still, um, still being solidified. Uh-huh. Um, they, they, they did not have their template and, and, and methods nailed down yet. And I think it would have been premature to go to these other markets on something that had not been tried and true. And now you're trying to fix things in multiple places at the same time. Okay. So we're back to knowing your execution model in yeah. detail as you're trying to expand being really clear that the processes for driving that are known, understood, robust, in effect, whatever that looks like for you, 
And then you've got an opportunity for scale. Yes. Because each location I go to will take its own peculiarities on that one. But if I don't have the core straight, then we're going to have real trouble. Exactly. 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 Okay. Okay. All right. So how do you know if your pro your processes are robust enough? Uh, I, th- I think it's I think when you get into the operational information, you start to find out where there's errors. You, f- you start to find out fulfillment problems. You start, you start to find out uh, and, and see evidence of of things that are the, the production just is not correct. Um, that starts to really show and it starts to demonstrate that something is amiss. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need to pay attention to it. So we're talking about going back and looking at error rates. If it's manufacturing, um, late shipments, supply chain issues, presumably you come in and help companies map out that entire chain. I could say value chain, but front end to back end to customer and say, where is this falling apart? That's correct. That's correct. And And we're we're typically very analytically driven uh, to zero in on on where exactly the hottest button is that is a pain point. And starting there, but yes, we do take a, an all-encompassing front-to-back look at uh, operation. All right, and is there a common place that you find frequently is a pain point? I do actually. Um, I, I think I think I think in the haste to grow, I think that leadership teams underestimate. We call it good, you know clean living, yeah. and that is is good good plain you know plain vanilla practices. Um, that are uh, compliant, that they are controlled, that they are tracked. You have good financials. And a lot of those times, a lot of times those things get shortchanged and you really pay dearly for it when the company is now big and you have to try to go back and try to resolve those things. Okay. You're right, right. Easier to fix it when it's small, very difficult to fix it when it's complicated. And as I expand the footprint, as you've rightly said, there are additional complexities that get added. We don't need our base processes to be a mess as well. That's exactly right. Okay. All right. Fair enough. All right. Douglas, this strikes me as a perfect place to take a break. Okay. And yep. when I come back, I want to talk about culture because we've been talking about business processes and growth and pitching ideas, but I want to flip that to talk about what it is that leaders need to be doing to promote a culture of growth. So my guest today is Douglas McCann. He's managing partner at Camber Advisors, and you can learn more about them at Camber, C-A-M-B-E-R, advisorsllc.com. And we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum. 
helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Douglas McGann, um, Managing Partner at Camber Advisors, which is a boutique management consulting advisory firm in New York and Connecticut, really focused on helping organizations drive situational awareness and provide advisory and execution support for C-suite leaders to navigate through the pivotal moments of change. We talked first about how it is that companies make go, no-go decisions. And if you're pitching a particular expansion, what is it that you need to be doing? And if I summarize that entire discussion, I would come down to test, test, and more test, because we're looking for some data, some evidence, some metrics, some financial numbers that show me that this is a plausible idea and how it would actually work. Second, that's a collaboration. I want to get out of my functional or particular area of expertise and get the perspective of people who work in different areas that will be called on to help collaborate and make this thing a reality. And I'm looking for roadblocks and barriers, alternative ways, creative solutions that are going to make that plausible and really happen. And then third, I'm going to say persistence, persistence, followed by more persistence, midnight oil, collect the data, navigate the politics, back with more data, and off we go. If it's a good idea, stick with it in a small way, at least to test it. So that's the first part. The second part that we were talking about is as your company is beginning to expand, the number one mistake that Douglas is seeing is that companies don't have their core business processes buttoned down, meaning the financials, the operations, the error rate, the supply chain, the go-to-market, the delivery, the customer service, every component of what you're delivering needs to be buttoned down and working without errors. So fix your errors before you're trying to expand. How's that, Douglas, in summarizing what you said in two minutes? Pretty, pretty amazing. All right, great. Let's shift now to the part of culture. And I think, you know, one of my favorite topics, and I know one of your favorite topics as well. What is it that leaders need to be focusing on the culture in order to drive a growth engine, if you will, inside their organizations? Uh, I I would say that leaders really need to uh, really need to embrace the diversity and the strength of of the of their team members, um, mm-hmm. I think it's 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 an it's an old statement. It's been said many times before that great great leaders hire a lot of people around them that are a lot smarter than themselves. Yeah, um, I, I think that you know certain leaders who are insecure about things, uh, insecure about their own position with their board and whatnot, 
I think it can spell out, you know, just devastating problems for, for teams. Um, I think new ideas and, and stimulating um, a, a try everything, fail quickly, adapt and pivot. Mm -hmm. um, it's not about giving up. It's about having the courage to actually take some risk and getting some really, really um, amazing things accomplished. That doesn't mean everything goes well. Right. And I think the more that you have people that have the courage to try and learn quickly and pivot when they see that something is not necessarily working in an optimal way, mm -hmm. I think those people are going to continue to be challenged with bigger and more difficult, more complex and more impactful things. Um, and those are your future leaders, the ones that are great at doing that. Right. Okay. Let's say I walk into an organization as CEO. I'll just sure. promote myself for the moment. And I have a culture around me where people are a little more fearful and they might be fearful because the prior leader was more of a command and control leader, or they might be more fearful because the market has been unkind to them, or they might be more fearful because they've been neglected, or they may have had a big mistake and they're afraid of repeating that mistake. I mean, a whole host of reasons make an organization on the more fearful side. What's your advice for how I get that organization moving in the direction of willing to try the courage to try again? And yes, fail quickly, but try. It's, it's, it's tough. It's tough to understand what the environment that that team might have been exposed to in, in the past. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the, the, the competence and the experience of that CEO in that, in that new role um, is going to be really, really important because I think that 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 vision that comes from that individual um, and setting the groundwork for everybody to collaborate and talk about out of the box items, things that, you know, not, nothing, nothing is sacred. Everything is everything is testable. Everything. If it's going to move the business in a way that it needs to be moved. Um, you know, nobody has the ability to be impassioned about something that's time has passed. Yeah. And so if it's time to move and it's time to change, then we need to change it. And I think that by them, you have to demonstrate by example. Um, I think you really have to inspire that thinking and, and be and, and demonstrate that some of those things actually can take flight and those changes can be made. I think it's going to be a starting place for that team. You have individuals on teams, though, everywhere I go who are, whose style is much more protective. And it's not that they're averse to change or bureaucratic. It's that they see their job is to protect the organization from the worst of itself. And so they take that very, it almost looks risk averse, but it's really protective. And it's a bit of controlling and protective. How do you get those folks willing to try? I was not always popular in this vein. I was a, I built a, I was a change agent amongst change agents in some of the large organizations that I worked in. And, you know, I, I used to celebrate the opportunity to shake people up and shake organizations up that were, you know, kind of old and, and kind of stayed in their way of thinking. Um, you know, very clearly, I think that when that type of thing happens, that's where this inertia comes in, where, you know, people start standing still, not even, not even realizing it. Um, and I think that, um, you, you, you have to embrace that discomfort, not as a threat, but you have to talk through it. You have to take the time in, as a leader individually to work with the folks 
uh, that are on that team. And, and you're, you, you need to get underneath what that apprehension is and that anxiety is. And I, 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 there, I, I wish there was a quick way of doing it, but it is a cultural um, art. Uh, you have to be artful in how you get people to expose these fears and anxieties because a lot of people translate their own fears and anxieties to demonstrating yeah. a weakness and then they're, then they're vulnerable. And that's right. not true. That's right. not true. And sometimes people have fears and anxieties that are, when you poke under the surface, unfounded. They're just fears right. and anxieties. And sometimes there's more complexity there than the leader actually really, truly understands. Right. So taking the time to really understand what's driving this worry, this almost roadblock, it feels like, or the, you know, I put my foot down and I said, well, no, we can't move, um, strikes me as a really powerful. Do you have advice on how to do that? I mean, it's just a matter of sitting down. You said it was artful. Yeah, I, I think, you know, look, I think great leaders, um, I always I always make the analogy that, you know, you walk through an organization and you, you kind of have a whiff of smoke that something might not be right. <laughs> and, and a lot of people walk through that organization and they smell it and they say, hey, something's burning. Yeah. Um, and I've always been somebody who pulls the floorboards up to find out what's burning. Yeah. And I think that having that conversation and having a leadership team that that doesn't passively walk by things that might seem or smell amiss. And that's that's an example that you set with people. So that when you work with them and you talk with them and you sit with them about these issues, none of these issues are too small to raise. Okay. Um, and taking the time to get them to really just find their voice, uh, because there's a lot of insight. In fact, I think there's probably a lot more insight to be found by talking to, um, you know, rising leaders um, than the leadership team themselves, because mm-hmm. it really is where the rubber hits the road and they're really having to endure right. some of the challenges the organization right. is experiencing. But that, Douglas, that's advocating, I think you've advocated this all the way through, it's getting into more of the minutia detail than most leaders really or CEOs really want to do. Because you said, let's pull up the floorboards and see what's underneath here. Not that I'm I'm the one that has to go rewire the building, but I got to sit with you as we pull up the floorboards and figure out what's really happening. I well said differently. I think I think what I mean by that is you surround yourself with a team of folks that are oriented towards that. You inspire that type of 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 in, um, being inquisitive, um, really not passively looking at what's happening in the organization. It doesn't mean that the CEO necessarily has to go in and sit side by side with everybody as they're digging these things up, right. but it does need to inspire a test and learn and question everything type of a mentality so that there's not a problem that's festering that you just aren't aware of. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think leaders, but I, I think great leaders have demonstrated through their own um, trajectory and their own growth um, that they have an appreciation for that because, you know, I think some of the greatest stories are those folks that came out of the mailroom. Yeah. And, you know, now that the CEO and I think the great story that everybody intuits from the two ends of that spectrum are that they've experienced everything in the company. Um, And I think sometimes the CEOs that come in after having been very successful, now they take the helm in an organ in a new organization. They really don't know how that organization is run. And it takes time to get that tactile feel. Um, And they'd probably be better served if they did. Yeah. All right. This is an unfair question because I'm going to go across a bunch of industries and ask you a very generic question. And it's probably easier within industry than what I'm about to do. 
But I always believe when you're coming into a business as a consultant or as a new CEO or as a new hire, that you need to understand what's really driving the engine of that business. Correct. Because if you don't know the engine and the engine room, then you can make a bunch of messes that really create. Sure. But, you know, teaching people how to go in and understand what's really making this work is a hard thing to do. So do you have advice on how to understand what's really driving a business? Um, Yeah, I I think we get, you know, it's interesting. I I get into discussions with CEOs that tell me what they think the situation is or what the issue is. Uh And I hear it. Um, And we take a lot of care to talk with all of the folks surrounding that leader Mm -hmm. um, to really understand whether their perception is the same as the Mm -hmm. CEO's. Mm -hmm. Um, it takes time. Yeah. Um, there's a way of asking the questions and triangulating in on every question and every discussion that you've had. Um, it either confirms, denies, or adds another element of question yep. to the discussion. Okay. And I think what we're looking, you know, what you, t- you tend to want to look for is consensus that that perception and the real hurdles that are in front of the business or what is driving it for that matter, um, one, are, are very well understood. And, and two, that, hey, you know, is if everybody's saying, hey, if this could just be this way, it would all be better. Um, you're looking for some common perspective on that. Mm-hmm. And you keep asking questions until you get it. Mm-hmm. And either you'll find out that the hurdles are bigger than you thought, or that it should be running faster than it is. One way or the other, that's the catalyst for actually starting to be able to change. Yeah. Um, I work with a lot of organizations where I often describe, I often take a piece of white paper and I put a bunch of circles on that white paper. Sure. And I say, you've got people running this circle incredibly well. In fact, the top team often is running those their circles particularly well. The problem is the stuff that's going wrong is all in the white space and nobody thinks they own it. So sometimes I think it's identifying what's in that white space and who collectively is looking out for it. Now, you agree, you see the same thing or you see something different? I do. I think um, I, I, where, where I see it is a lot of that, a lot of those things that, that, that become, um, you know, kind of in no man's land, mm-hmm. this purgatory of no attention, um, are sometimes the more needlesome, difficult, and it is. It doesn't sit squarely in marketing. It doesn't switch, sit squarely in finance. It doesn't sit squarely in PR or something like that. It, it, it's an intersection. There's a Venn diagram there to be yeah. to be reviewed, right? And I think that. Um, and I think your thinkers within the organization, and this is where the value of the team. I, I always like to have athletes around me. Um, athletes that aren't necessarily um, just self-declared experts in one thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really want them to have a diverse set of skills that, um, yeah, you gotta, you gotta do what you're responsible for, but I need you to pick up that, uh, you know, great leader needs you to pick up those things that are sitting out there because they can't, they, they, they can't be ignored. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't, you can't just sit there and look past them and kind of hope that they go away. Um, and, and, and I think you have to, you have to bring those things in and digest them within the management system. And sometimes they're not going to sit squarely within a function. You're probably going to have to, again, opportunity to inspire collaboration. You're probably going to have to task a couple of people solving it. Yeah. Yeah. 
I see that. I find that in our effort to make sure we're all doing our best, we carve our circles with less overlap and more space between them because I don't want to get in your territory and I don't want you in my territory and I'm going to run my part and you're going to run your part. And then we get those circles too far moved apart. So we actually don't even see where the overlap is. Right. Lower down in the organization, they often see it. And then it becomes way too easy if the company isn't succeeding to start blaming. So you have a leader leave and then you're going to say, well, it was because that person, you know, yada, 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 had they run their business well, that we wouldn't be having these problems. But the truth is nobody was looking under the floorboards back to your analogy. Right. Okay. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think, I think that silos emerge in that, in those types of challenging times. And I think that, um, and it really is, it really is, uh, the onus, the onus really sits with the CEO to inspire um, this uh, breaking, this the, the breakdown of these siloed thinking, um, and that is an individual interaction with you, certainly your leadership team, um, and it is about laying out the expectations of what collaboration and 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 working together means. I, that seems like such easy concepts, but personalities come in, insecurities come into play. Um, yeah, you just so many things that are of a personal nature drive so much of what does and doesn't happen within these organizations. And that is where that leader really needs to come through uh, to inspire. Um, yeah, there might not be a clear answer, but somehow it's it's been doing the two or three of you. Uh, so I think I spend 50 percent of my time working with top teams, helping them clear up personalities and insecurities oh, and injuries. And I'm not going to work with you again because of X, Y and Z or, amazing. you know, I'm not going to trust you or. And I say that in very extreme language. Most C-suite executives are very sophisticated in how they describe exactly what I just said. Man, it's amazing. Some what it, It's not impossible to clean up, but boy, it's a mess if you don't do it. And it comes down through the organization. The teams underneath them see it and feel it and then don't collaborate as well. Well, the the teams that are sitting between those two leaders that have kind of declared that they're not working together, none of their teams work together. That's right. Exactly. Because that would be disloyal. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that one. I see the worst of politics play out in exactly that moment. Oh, it's it's, (laughs) Yeah, right. Right. All right. I want to come back to something you said to me, which is... um, that organizations are in trouble when the leader promotes a culture of knowing versus learning. What do you mean and why do you say that? I think, um, I think leaders, great leaders promote um, a culture of learning because there's a humility in that statement in that uh, there's always something to new to learn. And quite frankly, the world is still spinning. Market dynamics are changing. And in this day and age, they're changing almost in every, in almost every capacity. Um, I think that the way things always were and, 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 you know, business concepts are changing so quickly these days that um, I I think you always, again, you have to inquire, you have to be inquisitive. You have to ask the question. Um, We had a situation where a a CEO, uh, you know, really, really thought that he understood the demographic that he was serving. And quite frankly, he had never engaged or spoken with anybody in that demographic to understand what they think about and what they talk about. Mm -hmm. And so and now you're now he's now he's charting the course in terms of what services they're going to buy. And it's an arrogant it's an arrogant seat to sit in to say that, you know, 
And you have to challenge the organization to reach out, be amongst the community, uh, deliver to the community, even if it's away from the product and service that your company delivers. You need to be relevant to that community, whether it be philanthropic, whether it be, um, you know, just 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 having a service mindset um, is really, really important. And I think that the more that that leader inspires a, a, a team of people to on their own and independently, not because they're product, but this is something where it's almost I've had to do it where I've actually had to performance manage people into having interactions with the community that they serve. And they had to come back and report on it because yes. it's the only way they know. And everybody's anxiety comes up when they're forced to do that because they don't know how to have the conversation. They don't know how to start. They don't know how you have to just persevere right. through that anxiety. Right. And you're amazed, you know, you're amazed at how much easier the conversation is than you had it whipped up in your head. Um, I re- reminded me years ago, we did an exercise similar to this, where we took a senior group of very senior executives and we put them with a different demographic user of their product. This was a large manufacturing facility mm. and had them talk to the owners of this product about pride, how much, what they were proud of, not proud of, um, their identification with the brand, the how it felt using, I mean, like, you know, a whole range of topics, not just with their product, but with their competitors' products as well. And sure. boy, if that is an eye-opening for a group of executives to come back and say, wait a minute, here's what they think of us and here's what they think of our competitors. Hold on, we have to do something here. Probably one of the most valuable and informative exercises they had done. Yes, I think it was, particularly as this was a group of marketing experts. Oh, there you go. Sure. <laughs> In particular, who thought they understood the brand. All right, knowing versus learning. Now, this is near and dear to my heart because one of my beliefs is that we have gotten over our skis on expertise. I think we need expertise, mm-hmm. but we're letting expertise drive absolutely everything, I think, inside of organizations. So, Expert leaders get focused on control, quality, managing risk. They don't get focused on embracing change, alternative exploration, learning in your case. Sure. Now, I still need expert leaders. Don't get me wrong. I can't go off wholehearted, you know, out on a complete gamble. I need those expert leaders. So it's really learning the balance between the two, Agreed. between the knowing and the willingness to learn. So What's your advice? We've talked about some examples about taking groups out, but any other advice on how you get a more learning mindset? Yeah, it's um, well, how do you get a more learning mindset? Um, it, it calls a, it calls into memory a, an experience where we had a, a founder of a business that was very into the science and very, very difficult to embrace what it was going to take to build the market. And so he was so fast and quick at launching new products because he was so proud of the science that the learning that he had and that he needed to embrace was, we have a lot of profit that we can still make on the product that you already delivered. We don't need a new product yet. Yeah. So you're you're really almost hurting yourself by being so into the science and driving from that perspective that the, the, the market hasn't even digested the great things that you've already done. Um, that was an that was an exercise in really um, it is patience, mm-hmm. um, and I think through demonstrated success of sales. But again, you have to shrink that shrink that test down. Demonstrate yeah. that what we're saying is true. Once he or she sees it, 
then all of a sudden you can start to accelerate from there and then you'll be able to do what they want to do. Yeah. But you got to start in a way that uh, that enlightens a scientist or an expert onto what it takes, you know, to get a market built and, and driven like that. All right. So I start with what the person knows, and then I look at the white space around them for what they don't know. And I'm right. trying to push them into seeing it. And we're right back to your notion of test and data. Okay. Right. Douglas, I love it. There's a very clear, consistent message on here. Test, data, inquire, inquiry, collaboration into the market is a core message and fix what's broken. Find out what's broken and fix it. Right. All right, before we close, I have to ask one of my favorite questions that I rarely get a chance to ask because I'm always out of time, but I'll ask you two minutes. What takes you out of your comfort zone? Well, I started with this. The monotony is really, really something I struggle with. Um, I think standard, boring, kind of regular, you know, day in, day out, I need that diversity and I get very uncomfortable uh, when I'm sitting in. I feel like I'm not learning. I feel like I'm not embracing um, I think that um, as as far as what I've had the tenacity to constantly dive into the deep end of the pool. Okay. Even when I don't understand the business that I'm in front of. Okay. So I'm fairly industry agnostic about what we get involved in. And while there are commonalities that are always there, there is a unique challenge in each one of those businesses. And that um, that experience that I've built up doing that has been uh, has served me well. So you look for the uniqueness in each situation. That's your antidote to the monotony. I do. Okay. Uniqueness in the individual, in the situation, in the market, in the personality. I am a student of these. I am a student of these businesses. And again, that learning is an important thing for me. Okay. I love it. All right, Douglas. Great conversation. My guest today is Douglas McCann. He's managing partner at Canberra Advisors which specializes in just what we've been talking about, growing your business. Um, And Camber also helps businesses navigate these key moments of change and transition. As we've been talking about when there's a moment of growth or a moment of shifting to scale or changing products, that's where they specialize. Um, You can learn more about them at Camber, C-A-M-B-E-R, advisorsllc.com. All right. um, I think the fun part of this conversation for me is reinforcing the learning culture versus the knowing culture. That inquisitiveness, the persistence, the willingness to go and get the data. So that's the cool part for me, I think, out of the takeaway. Situational awareness. Situational awareness. Okay, perfect. All right. So Douglas, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And if you've enjoyed this, check out our new subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. Definitely join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.